0: Good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. We'll have folks that will trickle in here in the next few minutes, I'm sure. Uh, But I want to start our morning off with prayer. I want to pray that we'll be very intentional about how we spend these next few minutes. That we'll be... um, It's so easy for us to be here in body, but be distracted with lots of things and uh, conscious of lots of things that are things. Things that are hard to not get off your minds. So I want us uh, to be real intentional about... Asking the Lord to set those things aside for the next little bit. We'll come back to them. They'll still be there at the end of the morning. But hopefully when you come back to see them or engage them or reconsider them, they might be physical issues. It might be money issues. It might be marital issues. It could be friend issues. It could be school issues. uh, It could be depression. It could be... um, uh, We bring so many things here on a Sunday morning. It could be uh, a triumph that you're walking in and celebrating this week. Whatever it is, let's set it aside in these next few minutes. Let's engage the living God and see what he does with us and in us this next hour and a half, maybe two hours, it won't be two hours, and um, celebrate in advance what he has in store for us. Let's pray. God, I am thankful that we have the opportunity to gather this morning. I'm thankful that we have the chance to sing things And speak things and enjoy things together that are just true. Lord, I need a dose, a heavy dose of something that's firm, an anchor to hold on to today. We need this, Lord. I pray that all the things that we bring to this worship time this morning, all these burdens and all these even triumphs and everything in between, That we can set those things aside and just take you in and just absorb and swim and celebrate and um, even eat um, this time together. Just abide in you as you abide in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will um, be blessed as we pour our attentiveness and our heart and our efforts and our mind into these next few minutes and pray that you will pour into us. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're here for the first time or first of a few times and haven't visited our little table over there, uh, after every worship service, we have someone, ideally, I think it's rare that we don't, but usually we have someone at that table. And we do today. Uh, Mike Riley's going to be at that table. There's Mike right there with his hand raised, just stand, just stood up. Uh, if you're here for the first, of, first time or first of a few times, please visit that table and just grab a little packet when you leave. It just captures who we are, what we're about, what, what's going on in the life of this church. Um, I think we still have those little little uh, gift cards in there, don't we, you know? Uh, you can't go to lunch today because it's a Chick-fil-A gift card, so sorry, it's a Christian, Christian store, so restaurants, so you have to go another time. But uh, we're not doing that for any other reason than just give you a chance to not even worry about at least a portion of the meal, depends on how large of a family you are, but so you can sit down and open that packet up and, and see what's in it and just um, consider it. So please do that if you would. Uh, just a brief announcement about yesterday. Um, I feel like this has turned up a little bit loud, like it's going to echo. At least I'm hearing it. Um, I don't like to have to uh, talk quietly. Our, our We have a team of uh, students that are going to Munich this summer with uh, two adults. Christy and Geneva are going to be going with six students this summer. And if you've been around for any period of time, you've likely heard about this Munich team. We're, going to, uh, we're sending this team to uh, partner with our family on the field there um, in Munich. And uh, fundraising endeavors have been significant. It's, about th- it's not about. It is $3,300 per person for this trip. So you can do the math and realize that is a sizable number and one that we really, um, early on, um, thought, well, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, at this point, we are so close, and yesterday was a significant event for us. Uh, we, we made $3,100 yesterday. The only thing, now, Twice as Nice, is that the name of the place that picked it up? Uh, An organization called Twice as Nice picked up all the leftovers, but I managed to, to keep a bell this little bell says "Mele Kalikimaka." Is that, Merry Christmas? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that have come together for this fundraising thing have really been what I would call miraculous. Like, first of all, who has a bell collection? I mean, I think that's a miracle that somebody would actually collect bells. Now, some of you that may, maybe somebody has a bell collection, maybe you're you're a miracle. But I just think it's amazing that someone would actually collect bells and that someone would turn in a bell collection to be sold at this event. And then the real miracle is that somebody that collects bells actually showed up (laughs) and bought like $50 worth of bells. But I managed to steal this one before they, before they did that, just as sort of a reminder of God showing up and doing something amazing. So, mele kalikimaka, that's, um, that's fitting. And um, I'm thankful, not only for what God did yesterday and all that, but He used you as you turned in your stuff. And you gave us, uh, some of you gave us your help as well, uh, but a lot of you gave us your stuff to sell. And I'm thankful. We're thankful. Uh, the team, the families that are connected to the team that have been just sweating bullets over how in the world this is going to come together, seeing how God's providing for it through the efforts of God's people and just through manna. This was a manna event yesterday, so we're thankful. Let me pray and we'll get started. God, we're thankful in advance uh, for our time, thankful for what you, um, I want to thank you specifically for what you did yesterday and what you've been doing in the lives of these team members and their families. Lord, seeing you at work in this team and bringing, building sort of cohesion through this, uh, these fundraising ventures, um, it's exciting to imagine that you're not only working here, but you're likely working on the other end, uh, given given the way you seem to move, that you're working on the other end in people's lives that our team will have the opportunity to meet this summer. I'm thankful that you are always at work, that you're never idle, and that you work on many fronts. And, Lord, I pray that we'll just be faithful in our little small uh, steps that you've given us. We'll be faithful in the small things, uh, that we'll take on big, scary things as you put them in front of us, trusting you as we go. We're thankful for how you're providing for us through our church family as well and through hard work, through uh, provision in ways that we just hadn't imagined. We are, we are grateful, Lord. Uh, also this morning, Lord, we want to lift up another church and another pastor. And his family. I want to pray for Paul Blue this morning. Uh, for family fellowship, we are thankful for um, a decades-old ministry uh, 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 that's been been ongoing in this community faithfully. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for Paul I, um, and his family. I, I don't know Paul, and it's something I'm burdened about that we've been serving together for this period of time in this community, and I don't even know him. But I'm thankful that I have the chance, we have the chance to lift up Paul this morning. I pray for his marriage, Lord. I pray that it's blessed that he and his wife are enjoying you, uh, that they are walking in the gospel, that they're putting on the, the gospel on display uh, as Christ loved the church, that Paul is loving his wife. And as the church submits to and enjoys Christ, that Paul's wife is enjoying him. And I, I pray that his family and his friends and his church have a front row seat to that. I pray that you would guard Paul and his family from... Uh, the potential in ministry for uh, the bride to, to become more important than his bride. And Lord, I pray that you would give him perspective and keep that perspective where his ministry first and foremost is to his wife and then secondly to his children and then third to his church family. Lord, I pray that you would give them that perspective. I pray that you would give his church that perspective if they don't have that already, that they wouldn't expect of him things that are impossible, but they would expect him to walk in the gospel at home first. Lord, I'm thankful for the chance to lift him up uh, personally this morning. Uh, just um, blessed to be able to do that, that you can hear that in your throne room. We we'll pray for family fellowship and for the ministry there, Lord. I, knowing that we have uh, friends there and folks that we've walked with in the past, Lord, I just pray that they are enjoying you and that this morning they'll be fed, nourished, equipped, uh, that they'll walk away um, salty, bright, and aromatic because of what you did in them and to them and will do through them thankful for the chance to lift up family fellowship this morning. What I pray in these next few minutes that you will be glorified as you um, communicate through your word and through the feeble, frail efforts of this guy, uh, but ideally through the work of the Holy Spirit in our, our hearts and minds, that we can appreciate the gravity of the covenant that we walk in that this morning that we can capture, at least just for a little while, hopefully for longer, um, the freedom that we walk in and the power that we walk in by our union with Christ. I pray that you'll speak clearly um, and that you'll use this for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a few passages for you to turn to this morning. Um, Romans 8. We'll be in Romans... 7 and 8 this morning, not in that order. We'll be in Romans 8 first, briefly, just to sort of get our feet wet in where we're going this morning, but we will end this morning in Romans 7 and 8, okay? And between now and then, between, well, not between now, between our first movement in Romans 8, we're going to go to Galatians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And then again, we'll land back in Romans 7 and 8. So we don't have a ton of places to go. I may have a few little satellites here and there uh, that I may have marked in my Bible already. Uh, If you're here for the first time and you're wondering what we're up to and if this might feel more like a Bible study because we're talking about passages we're going to be turning to, um, it... It may have some elements of Bible study, but um, it's really what we call preaching because I don't have a lot of stories to tell. I don't have funny things to share. I don't have any opinions really to share with you. My job this morning is to unpack what this thing says. So we're going to go to this Bible and we're going to consider this morning what we are, what we have been in these last few weeks. The topic is union with Christ. I'm imagining if you were to work with somebody or be neighbors of somebody or if you are neighbors of somebody and they ask, well, what is your church doing? What's going on there right now? And you were to share with them, well, we're in a series of sermons on union with Christ that you might get kind of a glazed overlook, kind of a thousand-yard stare. Like, what in the world is that? Really, for us, what we've been realizing these last few weeks is union with Christ is the essence of the good news in the New Testament. It it, it may not be a um, contemporary Uh, flashy title, but it is something that we as a church, um, since I think the Sunday before the new year, uh, have been considering and really been enjoying, that this is the good news much more than pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. Much more robust, much more dear, much more convicting and um, transforming and fueling To the point where people might actually be willing to be martyred for a truth like this. That it's that good. Who would die for pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven? I mean who would die for some wafer thin sort of understanding of the gospel? I'm not sure that I would. But this kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that's equipping martyrs. And it's something that we've as a church really been enjoying. We found over the last few weeks a number of things. But really if I could just sort of summarize them in a couple of sentences. It would be that our union with Christ, by our union with him, by faith... That his sinlessness, Christ's sinlessness, is counted as ours. That's only half of it. And then the other half of it is that our sinfulness is counted as his. And then really that's not even the full uh, truth there. The reality is that our sinfulness is counted as his, his sinlessness is counted as ours, and then his victory over death by our union with him becomes our victory over death. That is the good news that we've been enjoying these last few weeks in essence. This union series is going to continue, I think, through up until, I think we'll be ending on Easter. I think. I've been thinking that we were done. I've been thinking that this was the last Sunday, and then yet I see another window that we need to, another place that we need to step into. So uh, the plan, at least right now, is through Easter for us to continue Unless the Lord guides me in a different, different direction for us to continue with union with Christ. Today we're going to continue considering further what it means for Christ to be in us. The first part of this series was considering what it means to be in Christ. But last week was our first installment in what it means for Christ to be in us. This is our second installment in that. What it means for Christ to be in us. I dealt with this last week, but I want to just briefly deal with it this week. And Romans eight is a nice place to go is to ask and answer the question: How is Christ in us? Okay, last place we saw him, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in a human body. So, if you paid attention in science class, you know that physical things have a tough time occupying two spaces at the same time. If he's at the Father's right hand physically, then how then is he in our hearts? We asked and answered the question last week, but this passage is a nice. Um, Refresher in a passage that we didn't even look at last week. So one that we'll look at briefly. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. I want you to watch how he uses or how he refers to God in this passage. Look at how he refers to God in this passage. God the Spirit, God the Father. He's not Father is not here in, in here specifically, but just God and then God the Son. Let's look. Through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, there's a lot there. If you're reading that, likely for the first time today, it would be unlikely that many of you got up and read that passage this morning. But if you're reading that passage for the first time this morning, let me just help you sort of parse out how Paul is referring to God here. Look at what he says. He says he's referring to him as the spirit of God dwelling in you. And he uses that almost interchangeably with the spirit of Christ. And then later, Christ in you. Three phrases here in verses 8 and 9. The Spirit of God dwelling in you. The Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, if Christ is in you. Now, are these different names for the, for, for the same person? Some would think so. There's actually a movement, a long old movement, in the Pentecostal charismatic um, circles that's called modalism. It also has another name called the Jesus Only Movement that sees God morphing into these different persons. He morphs into Jesus and he morphs into the Holy Spirit and he morphs into Father. And let let me tell you this. These are people that you may work with. These are people you may go to school with. These are people you may be neighbors to. That ceases to be Christian. When you dismiss the Trinity, which is what that does, that ceases to be Christian. You need to understand right here in these passages, these are used interchangeably, but not because they are referring to the same being. Okay, we're not talking modalism here. We're talking about different persons here. If you read the next verse, it would be very helpful. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now that's helpful because all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in that passage in verse 11. First of all, you got the him. capital H. that I put a capital H on there? It's not there. But the spirit of him, secondly. And then you've got third, Christ, who's raised by the spirit. All three persons of the Trinity, distinct persons, are in that passage. Now, here's a little side point that I've been making, and then I'm going to come back to the main point. The side point that I've been making that I don't want to pass up a chance to point to Trinity is that there are three distinct persons, three of them, in one Godhead right here. And all three are mentioned. The spirit of him, the him, and the Jesus that's raised from the dead by the spirit of him. All three persons. Now, why did I go to all that effort? Because I don't want to pass up an opportunity to point to Trinity. But here's what I'm really getting at. when We're talking about union with Christ and how Christ dwells in you. Christ dwells in you, a believer, via the Holy Spirit. He uses language here interchangeably, not because we're talking modalism, because we're talking about three distinct persons, but he uses language here in, in, um, almost um, interchangeably because we're talking about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you and is how Christ dwells in you. We have to deal with, first of all, the question, how does Christ dwell in you? He dwells in you via the Holy Spirit. There was a more developed treatment of that last week, but I don't want to miss that this week. Now, it's more than a nifty thought that Christ dwells in you, that you are united to Christ by faith, that you dwell in Him, that He dwells in you. It's more than a nifty thought. It's more than a kind of cool Bible study idea. It is something that I think you'll find over the course of this morning equips you for life and equips you with how to deal with sin in your life how to deal with this journey of faith, how to deal with things that shouldn't be there that are there or things that should be there that aren't. It's oh so practical. We're not talking about some sort of academic idea. We're talking about, at the heart, the good news of the, of the New Testament. that union with Christ by faith is Christ dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's a profound reality. Last week we considered the first of three things that we're going to be considering. The second thing today and the third thing next week is that last week we considered that that makes for profound fruit. When God the Spirit, when Christ via the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that's going to make for profound fruit. John chapter 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, we could say via the Holy Spirit He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Last week we found that the branch's purpose is to bear much fruit, period. His fruit, the fruit that the vine produces, the branch bears. And the branch is best served by focusing on and enjoying the vine, not focusing at the end of the branch trying to squeeze out some fruit. The branch is best served, focusing on and enjoying the vine as the source of nourishment and life. And when that happens, people of God, fruit happens in His time and for His glory. That's what we considered last week. But this week, we'll consider the second outcome of Christ dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit as profound power. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I'll give you a minute because I want to hear pages turning. I want folks, even if you're not accustomed to reading your Bible and even if you're not accustomed to listening to a sermon and as someone is preaching from a Bible, this is a good day to start because you need to see what I'm dealing with here. I'm not making things up. I'm not sort of um, producing these ideas. They come from God's Word. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20, and then we're going to sort of unpack this a little bit. And we're going to get at one of the what we're dealing with today, is profound power as an outcome of Christ dwelling in you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me give you a little bit of context before we unpack this a little bit. Paul's critics in the book of Galatians are called Judaizers. Judaizers were people that were teaching in the Galatian church that it wasn't enough to believe in Christ, but you needed to, you needed to make sure that you're your circumcised men, specifically, were circumcised as well. They're, they're encouraging grace plus a work. And here's why. They were uncomfortable with Paul's teaching on Justification. Okay, Justification is, uh, this is a very simplistic way of looking at it. It's not a way that I would, would, if I were preaching on justification, I would give a more thorough explanation. But in light of what I said at the beginning this morning on union with Christ, where his sinlessness is counted as ours and our sinfulness is counted as, here, as his, a good way to think about justification and what it is, is just as if you'd never sinned. And just as if you'd lived righteously. That's what union with Christ means for you. So think about justification that way as we consider this. These Judaizers were uncomfortable with Paul's teaching on justification. They believed, if you could put the words in their mouth, this is how it would come out. Your doctrine, Paul, of justification through faith in Christ, only and apart from works, is a dangerous doctrine, Paul. It does not scratch the itch of man's sense of moral responsibility, What are we supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to do something, Paul? I don't like this thing where we just trust in Christ alone. If one can be accepted through faith in Christ alone, then Paul, I'm afraid you're encouraging them to then go and break God's law. If we were to put into words what the Judaizers were afraid of and what they're accusing Paul of, that's how it would go down. And really, here's a question that they would ask and one that you may ask yourself, one that your friends may ask if you're talking to them about what it means to trust Christ alone. If God justifies bad folk, then why bother being good? It's a great question. It's a great question. I hope we'll deal with that here in these next few minutes. Paul's response to these Judaizers. Ultimately, what the Judaizers charged Paul with was the thought that justification by faith alone encouraged ongoing sin. What they accused or were fearful of is that justification was just a judicial decision. That God just made a judicial decision but nothing actually happened in the worshiper other than a reckoning by God. So this is what Paul deals with in this passage that it's, oh, so much more. His critics fail to realize that justification by faith is not merely a status change. It's not merely a judicial decree. And here's the language of this passage. Pay attention to it. In verse 16, he says, we are justified in Christ, i.e. in union with Him. We were crucified with Christ in verse 20 i e in union with him and paul goes on to say it's no longer i paul who's even living but christ lives in me i e in union with him through mutual indwelling with him he and i and i in him and paul goes on to say yeah i'm still wearing flesh I'm still here wearing this same flesh that I was wearing before, but I'm different now because I've been united to Christ and something profound has happened and it's more than a judicial decision. It's more than a status change. That's what the Judaizers were afraid of. Paul says, I died with Christ via crucifixion so that there's a nice little of clause there, so that I can live to God in verse 19. I died with Christ so that, in order that, I can live to God. Paul's point to the critics of justification is the death and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a historical event. It wasn't just something that happened back in the Past where something was reckoned in the high court of heaven alone, but by our union with Him, that those events that happened then, 2,000 years ago for us, leave us changed by our faith in Him. Our union with Him leaves us different, it leaves us changed altogether. We're not the same. Once we've been united to Him by faith, our old lives are gone. We were crucified with Christ as well. I think it's so fitting that Paul, the guy that teaches this message, is the guy that leaves heading out to Damascus one morning named Saul. And something profound happens to him on the Damascus road where Christ reveals himself to him. There's a conversion experience. And then he gets on wherever he ends up as Paul. He's an altogether different person. Something profound has happened, and it's more than a reckoning in the high court of heaven. It's more than a status change. What once stirred Paul, what's once stirred us, and what once owned us, and what once owned Paul, owns us and Paul no more. Something profound has happened because Christ is living in us, and it gives us a severe hatred for sin. It gives us new desires for holiness. And it gives us the desires for our Father and for things above. Now, here's the reality. It's not that we can't sin anymore, but we sure don't want to because something has happened in us. And it's more than a status change. It's more than judicial decree. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not sure why this passage has become so dear to me, but I think it's because it's just so, it deals with such a human bunch. The, the Corinthian church were just so troubled. They had so many things going on. You look at the, the, the headings throughout 1 Corinthians and you see sexual immorality defiling the church. In chapter 6, you see lawsuits against believers, sexual immorality stuff. Uh, marital issues, food offered to idols. You see all sorts of things. You see a a stingy bunch that aren't taking care of Paul and Barnabas. You see idolatry issues. You see all kind of stuff going on in the Corinthian church. There's a lot of affection for these guys. I have a lot of affection for them because I'm human and because I walk with y'all. Listen to what goes on in chapter 6, what he says. He's just been dealing with lawsuits against believers and in verse 9 he says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Corinthians. Neither the the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, what a welcome word, were some of you. Such were Some of you, you used to practice these things. You see those things listed there, and you might say, well, man, I see a couple of those things in my life from time to time. The question would be, are you practicing these? Are you living in unrepentant state of sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or homosexuality or thievery or greed or drunkenness? That's what he's dealing with here. He's saying you were those people, but you're not those people anymore. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you by faith, you were united to Christ. So such were some of you. It's more than a judicial decree. He's talking about the way their lives play out. He's talking about more than just a reckoning. He's talking about the warp and woof of life, the kind of stuff they do from day to day or don't. I'm going to show you something here in these next few minutes. I actually produced a slide or a series of slides. And I'm pretty proud of them because my slides are notoriously crummy. But these, look at that. You can read it, first of all. It's got colors. And I've got this, too, because Jeff gave it to me. And I feel like I should use it. I don't really need to use it, but I feel like I should because I have it. Because you can go right on it. See, Augustine on sin. Augustine was, um, Augustine, this guy was an, an, a, one of our early church fathers from around 400 A.D. He was the, uh, referred to as Augustine of Hippo. Hippo was a location. It's not a critter. It's a location that's present-day uh, Algeria. And Augustine wrote some wonderful things on theology. Okay? One of the things that he developed was a system of making sense of what I'm talking about this morning. Of how and where sin and ability, our ability to not sin, plays out in the life of the believer. Okay? Or, the, or the unbeliever. Okay? Hit that first slide. Okay, this is pre-fall man. All right? See this right here where I got the little red thing, just in case you can't read that? Pre-fall man. Jeff, you like how I'm using that? Pre-fall man, okay? Adam and Eve is who are the only people that we're talking about here at this point. Because that's the only ones that existed before the fall. I believe in a very literal Adam and Eve. Not a figurative, but a very literal, like, like the scripture reads, a guy named Adam and a gal named Eve. And they're around the garden, walking around the garden. And two things are true of Adam and Eve. They are able to sin, which they proved likely. Some people think it was Sunday <laughs> of creation week. Like they couldn't last even until Monday while God's resting on Sunday that they're off listening to the serpent. It wouldn't surprise me. If it was Ben and Eve, that would have been the case. (laughs) Okay, but they're able to sin, first of all, and they're also able not to sin. Okay, Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin. You may have never thought about that before, but that's what Augustine put together. Before the fall, they certainly had the ability to sin, which they proved, but they also had the ability... Not to sin. Okay, let's look at the next slide. Post-fall man. This would be after the fall in the garden. That man from that point on, man ever since Adam and Eve, unless something profound happens to them, which I will call in a moment rebirth, that all man across the board, and I say man as in terms of man and woman, child, every human being, is able to sin but is also Unable to not sin. Now, Augustine had this cool Latin phrase that I can't even remember. It was passe picare, passe non-picare, non-passe non-pecare, all this kind of cool stuff that, that Scott said, are you going to share that to be you know impress everybody? And that was my effort at it. I, I'm not sure if you're impressed or not, but but here he says that man is able to sin, which everybody knows. Romans 3:23, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Man's Able to sin, but also man is unable to not sin. Think about that for a minute. Apart from something profound happening to you, you are not able to not sin. There might be some terms that we could associate with that sort of language. It might go something like enslavement, slavery, bondage to sin. If I'm unable to not sin, that sounds to me like slavery. And if it does to you, then you're thinking correctly because that's what we're talking about apart from something profound happened. Okay, hit that next slide. This is the reborn man. Yeah, reborn man. Let me share a passage with you so you'll know who we're talking about when we're talking about reborn man. This is from John. And you're going to see the role of the Holy Spirit in there. Just listen to this passage, John chapter 3. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, it's all night, it's scary, he's afraid, you know, being found out. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, he could be referring to the like when your wife turns to you and says, Hey baby, I think my water's broken. I mean, he could be talking about a real physical birth there, he could be talking about baptism. Either case, we know what he's talking about next. If he's born of water and the Spirit, unless he's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying apart from union with Christ by faith, where the Holy Spirit indwells him, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's the rebirth we're talking about here. Okay, so let's look at this this third person. This would be, if you want to think about it in terms of what we talked about last week, where where Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit showed up. and This would be Peter and the gang Okay, at Pentecost. These might be the first reborn people that we're talking about, where the Holy Spirit shows up and he has been dwelling with them, but now he dwells in them as promised by Jesus. Okay, this person with the Holy Spirit indwelling them, the reborn man, is able to sin. Anybody have any, is anybody unsure about that? Anybody come to Christ in faith and and not realize that we're still able to sin? That's bad news, I know, but it's still there. We're still able to sin, but here's the difference we are able to not sin. We are able to not sin. I hope you recognize how profound that is. I'm going to show you a little parallel here in a minute. Previously, before, before something happening profound, before rebirth, you are not able to not sin, but Augustine put it in this terms, but afterward, you are actually able to not sin. Hit that next slide. This is the last possibility. This would be glorified man who is able to not sin, as we would hope, but is also unable to sin. That's a pretty glorious time. This is the only time that perfection is possible. In case any of you are kind of piecing things together and thinking ahead, if you're able to not sin, well, does that mean that we're capable of being perfect? Well, perfection only comes right here in the glorified man because you're still able to sin. Sorry. Sorry. You're still able to sin this side of glory. But after glorification, you are able to not sin and you are unable to sin. Okay, hit that next slide. And here they are side by side. This, you're seeing this for the first time. I'll give you a chance to just kind of process this. This is pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. We're standing on robust shoulders with a guy like Augustine. And it's pretty, pretty. I think it's pretty awesome that we have the morning to consider that together, what Augustine taught here. Side by side, pre-fall man is able to sin and able to not sin. Post-fall man, everybody since Adam and Eve, able to, and including Adam and Eve, <laughs> able to sin, unable to not sin, and reborn man, able to sin, able to not sin, and then glorified man, able to not sin, and unable to sin. Now hit that next slide. Now here's what I want to show you that, that just blows me away. Just confession to you. Reading about Adam and Eve before the fall, I don't know if it was Sunday. We don't know if it was Sunday that they sinned, you know. But maybe they at least had a few hours, you know, if it was Sunday. (laughs) A few hours of sinlessness. You know, a few hours of ability to not sin. I've looked at Adam and Eve over the years and I've thought, man, how cool did they have it? They were able to sin, of course. They proved that. But they were also able to not sin. How cool was it to be Adam and Eve? And I've thought sort of jealously over the years. Look what their ability that they had and realized, wait a second. We have the same ability that Adam and Eve had. See, these both are the same Prefall man is able to sin and he's able to not sin. And reborn is able to sin and able to not sin. Did, he, did you see that? Does that hit you as profound? It, 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 it blows me away that we, through the work of Christ, through rebirth, through union with Christ, that we are virtually restored to the garden relationship with God. Does anybody else really think that's pretty awesome? I, I mean, I'm blown away by that. What a profound age we live in. Through the work of Christ, post Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit moved into believers, that we are now restored to the garden in a situation where we're able to sin, but we're also able not to sin. Not to sin. Hear, hear, shackles falling away, literally. Hear them. Like I wish I had like an audio to play where shackles are falling off. That's what you should hear and realize is the New Testament believer. That's what we have this side of Pentecost. With the Holy Spirit moving in in the person or through um, Christ dwelling in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, you're still in 1 Corinthians, I hope. I want you to look. I'll leave this up for a minute. You can leave that up. I didn't have any slides after that, did I? Okay. I'll leave that up just for a minute so you can kind of process this. Maybe some new thoughts for you. Well, here, let me show you how this plays out in 1 Corinthians 6. I've just read a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that's going uh, dealing with verses 9 through uh, 11 where he says, Such were some of you, but you're united to Christ by faith. The Holy Spirit moved in, so the, the were is key. You're not those people anymore. Now listen to what he says next. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now watch what he's going to start talking sexual immorality here. One of the most magnetic sins that I know of, sexual immorality. Listen to what Paul says about sexual morality. He says the body's not meant for sexual morality, but for the but, the but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, here union, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm going to go all the way through verse 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, i.e. he moved in whom you have from God. You are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. Now why all that effort to then go back and unpack verses 12 through 20 is that what I want you to see is what Paul said. He said, such were some of you but you were united to Christ by faith so now you're joined to the Lord, verse 17 the Spirit dwells in you, verse 19, so verse 18, flee from the most magnetic sin that I know of. I see man after man destroyed in their marriage because they're enslaved, are living like they're enslaved to this, when in fact he tells you, tells them flee from this stuff by your union with Christ, you being the temple of the Holy Spirit, flee from it why would he call you to something that you couldn't actually do There's some men in this room that are enslaved to pornography that ought to hear that. God is not going to call you to something that you don't actually have the ability to do. That would be cruel. But he's given you the Holy Spirit. And when he says flee from it, right there, look, you are able to not sin. That's what happened at conversion for you. That's what happened when the Holy Spirit moved into you. You have a profound power that you didn't have before. You have a profound power that humankind did not have before 2,000 years ago. Everything changed when Christ died and paid for your sin and was buried and raised and now is seated at the right hand. Everything changed when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and moved into believers. But yeah, we can still live like a bunch of slaves. Man, we are by our union with Christ, new covenant worshipers. Man, people get all kind of cool tattoos all the time. I was talking with some, we were uh, at dinner last night talking with friends about tattoos. And I'm not against tattoos and uh, they're not that big a deal to me. You know, I'm not, I'm not this is not a disparaging comment about tattoos but man if i were to get one i would get like new covenant worshiper <laughs> man that's who we are it's a different ball game for us turn to jeremiah chapter 31 i want you to see this I want you to see the promise that was given 600-something years before Christ. This promise came through a man named Jeremiah, a prophet who's prophesying about the exile, but not just about the Babylonian exile, but about the restoration after the exile. Seventy years' worth of exile is in store for them. He's prophesying about what's in store for them after the exile, but he's also pointing to something that's in store for mankind. And this is where we're going right here, where he writes of something that he's calling a new covenant. In Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, this is a passage you ought to just just remember where where to go to. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Not like Sinai. Not like that covenant. There's a new covenant that's coming. And in verse 33, he gives us some information about it, some details. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What had been written on stone, I will now write on their hearts. On hearts of flesh, no less. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. There will be a kingdom of priests in this new covenant. Where the least of these, from those, the youngest, the smallest among us, that were baptized into the people of God just a few weeks ago, to the most aged among us that have been walking with Christ for or for decades We will all have access to the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He is speaking of the new covenant that we live in and walk in right now. We first considered this as a church over in Hebrews. We were moving through Hebrews together for however many years. Hebrews chapter 10, where the Hebrews preacher quotes this passage verbatim. He's sharing this with a church that's on the bubble that's struggling with disbelief. And he takes them to this reality that they are new covenant worshipers, encouraging them with the reality that we live in the age that he was promising to Jeremiah right here. We live in this age right now. We walk in this era right now. We know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. And not only do we know it, we're actually walking in the rest of the story. We're walking in this chapter where he promised profound, profound things of access and presence for all of those in union with Christ. We have the indwelling Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit and we're walking in this age The new covenant worshiper, right here, is far more capable than the old. Like night and day. Like black and white. Far more capable than the old. Yet we can live like we're a bunch of emancipated slaves who don't know how to live free. I'll never forget the illustration. Actually turn to Romans 7 and as you're turning there. I'll share this little story with you. I'll never forget the illustration um, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was trying to find this because I wanted to share it with you verbatim, but it, it's one that I was unable to find, where he shares a story of how we can tend to live. We can tend to live like some of the slaves that were uh, freed in, in the North under the Emancipation Proclamation but didn't know how to live free. So they'd go into town and they would call all the white folk master. And they would load and unload their wagons. Because they didn't know how to live free. And we can do the very same thing. Enslaved to stuff that we're no, no longer enslaved to. to. I'm going to come back to that Emancipation Proclamation in a moment. But let's, I'm going to share a sizable passage. And I'm just going to stay at the sort of the bird's eye level of this passage. This is... Uh, This passage I'm about to share with you for many years has been a passage that's brought me much comfort. But I've been reading it, I believe, with everything in me. Ever since Hebrews, I've been reading it wrong. I believe with everything in me. Paul's been talking covenant stuff. He's been talking about union with Adam. Just look at these chapters before. Peace with God through faith in chapter 5. There's a heading in chapter 5. Death in Adam, life in Christ. He's talking union stuff. He's talking about uh, what the lot was for the Jew in the Old Covenant and what is in store, what we have in the New Covenant as believers. Dead to sin, alive to God. Slaves to righteousness. Just look at those headings. And then in chapter 7, released from the law. Just think about these words to a church that's trying to sort out faith and sin and law and life. How all these things work together. These might not be things that you care about, but you really should. We should be trying to wrestle with these things as well. Maybe you haven't been consciously wrestling with them, but maybe from time to time you've wrestled with Well, how does this work? So let's see what he says to this church, this wrestling with faith and sin and law and life. He says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Let's just, submit. I want to kind of help you visualize what he's talking about when he's saying law there. Visualize the Old Covenant. For purposes of where we're going in these next couple minutes, visualize the Old Covenant. Visualize Sinai, where the Old Covenant was given to Israel. Okay, visualize that as this, this moment where he gives ten commandments to help some of you that may not, may not have even pieced that get together yet. That's what happened at Sinai, where the law is given. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband. He's using an illustration to help them understand their relationship to what God gave them at Sinai. Listen to this illustration. It's it's brilliant. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, he's using an illustration, now he's about to explain it for him. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, here union. Your union was with Adam, or your union was, in this case, the illustration he's using, with the law and with your flesh and with your efforts at being holy and righteous. But now you belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Remember the bondage language I used on those earlier slides? This bondage, unable to not sin right there. And I talked about language of, of, of slavery and this, this, this sense of being imprisoned. He says, now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're released from that union, we're released from that bondage, and we're released from that slavery. And now listen where he goes in these next verses. I want you to think about this. Imagine Paul giving a testimony on the morning that he left for Damascus. In Acts chapter nine, the first couple of verses in Acts chapter nine is, the, is his conversion story. In, chapter, in verse three is where Christ appears to him. Imagine if you could stop Paul before Christ appeared to him, where he still Saul. Saul, let's say we we'll make this realistic. Come here, Saul. You got a minute? Yeah, I got a minute. I'm about to go persecute some Christians, but I got a minute. Okay, let me ask you a few questions. What's it like being an old covenant Jew? he doesn't even know new covenant yet because as far as he knows it hadn't come yet he hasn't been converted yet he's still walking in old covenant he's still walking in Sinai he's still walking in fleshly efforts to be righteous and holy let's imagine that we could let's imagine we could ask Paul tell us about what life is like for you Paul or Saul let's keep our, our, our names correct pre-conversion Paul was Saul Saul how's life for you as an old covenant Jew let's see what Saul would say what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Actually, I'm going to save this for a moment where he gets real vulnerable. Okay, just read with me. Just follow along with me for a minute. Just do your very best to pay attention to this because this is really rich. And you'll find in a moment why I think... I'll, conf- I'll share with you why I felt a tremendous amount of comfort from this passage for many years. But where I think I've been reading it wrongly. Listen to this. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin... What he's referring to here is Sinai in many ways. It would be like if you had cancer and you went to the doctor and you submitted to an MRI or a CAT scan and the CAT scan or MRI said you're dying and you have cancer. It was already there, but the MRI or the CAT scan is what turned that on and revealed that to you. It was already there. That's what the law does for us in our lives. We examine the law. As it sheds light on us, we realize, holy cow, I've got cancer. I'm in bondage to sin and Satan and death. I'm dying. That's what the law did. That's where he's going here in these next few minutes. I wouldn't have known sin apart from the law, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. He's getting kind of vulnerable here. Saul, you're being pretty honest. You're being an honest Jew here, sounds like. Sounds like you're saying that things aren't going well as you try and do your best to obey the law. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, i.e. the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That, friends, is is slavery language. That's slavery language. Sold under under sin. You can hear the shackles around his wrists right there as he's talking. Remember, he's Saul at this point. It's like interviewing Saul. He says, man, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Let's keep reading, see what he says. For I do not understand my own actions. Here's where he gets real vulnerable, I think. You're holding the mic in front of him, and maybe big Jewish tears are coming down his face. This Pharisee is brokenhearted over this reality. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I know the law, I'm familiar with the law, but I can't seem to obey it. I am unable to not sin. You could almost hear him say I am unable to not sin. Let's see what he says next. Now, if I do, the do, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's like Paul saying, I am unable to not sin. And you know what? It sucks. I've, man, I've given my life to the law. I studied under Gamaliel. I gave everything to this. I want to walk with Yahweh through obeying his law, yet I am unable to not sin. I desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Is anybody heartbroken with Saul right there? Can anybody relate to that sort of feeling? I am unable to not sin. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Big, big puppy dog tears coming down his face. Now if I do not do excuse me, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So if I find so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being but I see my members Another, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, hear captive bondage language to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. It sounds like this guy, this unregenerate guy, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me stop right there. This sounds like the testimony of an old covenant worshiper. I told you I was going to share a little more about the Emancipation Proclamation. That happened in 1863. The Civil War started in 1861. I believe it ended in 1865. So it's right in the middle of the Civil War okay, that the Emancipation Proclamation came, where by, uh, uh, by executive order, I want to make sure I didn't use the language right, not edict. He wasn't a king. By executive order, he says, I'm setting, or uh, we are setting the slaves free. Well, in the South, the Confederates, most of them, continued to move on with, oh, that's my property, that's my slave. I'm not going to live like that has any power or any meaning for me or any relevance for me. What I fear when we live like this right here, when I was taking so much comfort in this passage, thinking this is this a regenerate Paul confessing what life is like as he's dealing with this dualism of flesh and spirit, as I took so much comfort in that, I was living like a Confederate. I was afraid I'm, a, I'm afraid I was living like a Confederate in the South, not recognizing a decree, not a decree, executive order that's so profound that I'm actually free that I'm living like a slave. Think about the slave owners. The property owners didn't recognize the Emancipation Proclamation. And some of the slaves in the north didn't know how to recognize it because they didn't know how to live free. Think about that for a minute. If we as believers are told all over the New Testament, if we're told even in that prophecy from Jeremiah 600 years before Jesus of something profound happening to us, and then we're told all over the New Testament about all this victory that we've got, all this Freedom that we've got. If we're called to do things like flee, even the most magnetic of sins, but we really can't do it. Is anybody angry about that notion? Does that bother anybody but me that God would call us to something, this carrot, and then just as we get almost get to it, he would pull it away. Oh, sorry. Like a greyhound, you know, that's racing around the track and he's trying to chase that hot dog or whatever it is, rabbit, whatever it's out in front of him. I've never been to the gray racetracks, but I don't know what that is. They're chasing, and you just can't get it. You know, you keep getting it. Oh. Is that what the Christian journey is like for us? Man, that's cruel. I don't know if I even like that kind of God. He's going to call us to something that we can't actually do. We're going to be told to flee from things that we can't actually defeat, that we can't actually put to death, that we're not truly able to not sin. Man, that's heartbreaking news for me. But let's look at where he goes in the rest of this passage. He ends that chapter with, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How about in the next verse? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen? Man, anybody else felt the weight of slavery to sin and death? And felt like that wretched man that Paul is saying, wretched man that I am, can, can, can enjoy this statement. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh? If that's what I'm all about, I'm serving the law of sin. Contextually, that's what he's saying right here. He's been dual, showing the dualism between flesh and life, flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. And if I'm walking in the flesh, I'm serving the law of sin and death and slavery. But he said, We don't walk according to the flesh. Just a few verses later in verse nine, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Man, we are like, I've used this illustration before, and I, the kids connect to it, but even some of the adults connect to it. We're like robo worshipers. That may be the worst illustration in history. But I'm telling you right now, we are not what you think we are so often. We are able to walk in things old covenant worshipers were not able to walk in. We are able to walk in things that humankind wasn't able to walk in before Christ did what he did and the Holy Spirit moved in. Look how this reads in chapter 8. In fact, I wasn't even going to deal with chapter 7 this morning until I was sitting reading chapter 8 going, golly, let's contextualize it. Let's read together chapter 8, just a few verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. Let's use the language we've been talking about. There's therefore no condemnation. That doesn't sound like a guy that's saying, wretched man that I am. That's a victory word right there. Do you know who we are? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life. of life has set you free. Hear the shackles fall off. Hear them hit the ground. Hear the prison doors fly open. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're not walking according to the law of sin anymore. It doesn't own you anymore. You are able to not sin. Man, this is seriously good news. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Do you see that? Man, it's probably going to take some time for you all to process this. And I want to give you that because I, I don't see a bunch of eureka faces. But I'm hoping that over the course of this week, as you had a chance to sort of process this, you're going, holy cow, eureka. That is some seriously good news. This stuff that has been enslaved, that I felt enslaved to my whole life, that in union with Christ, there's hope. There's hope. I need to know that. We'll come back to that. Let's continue just a few more verses. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. He's who dwells in you, we could put in there. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I would say, contextually, he's that wretched man in the previous chapter. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, I believe, lives in this desperate, heartbreaking place where the greyhound is chasing the rabbit never to touch it and thinks somehow that's how God moves. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. We're talking about right now. We're not talking about your resurrection. We're talking about the point of conversion. That the Holy Spirit dwelling in you brings life to your dead bodies. Man, so then brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if the but by the if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you'll live for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to walk around town calling all the white people master loading up carts you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Man, I hope that you, as families and as life groups, I I was planning on just giving that to life groups and letting you all, parse that out this week and I said now I'm gonna cut the last part of the message out and I'm just gonna take my time with that I know it's a lot it's a gob of scripture a lot of stuff that you're probably processing right now but I want to have a chance to put that in one sitting right here so that we can talk about it as families we can talk about it as life groups what he contrasts right there in those last 17 verses or so was living by the spirit vice living by the flesh the mindset on the flesh cannot please god you're unable to please god and those who are in the flesh cannot please god because you're enslaved to sin but then he reminds them in verse 15 you didn't receive the spirit of slavery those shackles have come off you've received the spirit of adoption and what he called earlier remember from the, where we started this morning through the spirit of christ dwelling in you. Man, I hope that this morning that this should leave you, ideally it should leave you optimistic. First of all, optimistic with yourself. I said it last week. I said these words, and I heard from people over the course of the week, man, they brought me comfort. Give yourself a break. And I want to say them again this week. Give yourself a break and be optimistic that the Holy Spirit in you That through the Holy Spirit in you, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That he will bear the fruit of righteousness in time. You focus on the vine. Give yourself a break and be optimistic too about this thing that you've been chasing maybe your whole life. This thing, I threw out pornography, is something that men struggle with. Some men are truly living like, and I'm going to use that language, like they're enslaved. Believers. Man, be optimistic about it. Know already from what we've said here, you're not enslaved to it. By your union with Christ, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. So don't live like a slave anymore. You're like, man, I've failed at that so many times. I brought other guys into this thing. It just feels like this perpetual failure. So I quit quitting. I used that phrase last week and didn't explain it. Let me explain it now. Don't quit quitting. Be optimistic that he who began a good work in you will be faithfully completed. Be optimistic that this, that you have the ability to not sin. (laughs) Don't run to the places. That mean I'm supposed to be perfect? No, that's for glorified man. Because unfortunately we still have the ability to sin. But just knowing, oh, okay, wait a minute. You mean I actually have the ability to catch the rabbit? Okay, I'll keep running then. You mean I actually have a chance to eat the carrot and he's not just dangling it in front of me and it's not just this exhaustive, lifelong frustration that I can never find any victory over this? Now there's good news. You can be optimistic with yourself. And the other part of that is being optimistic with other people. I find that we're far more forgiving and graceful with ourselves than we are with other people. I am. But other people, man, if they burn us a few times or they frustrate us a few times, like, I'm done with you. This will hopefully give you the the realization that, man, I I can endure with this dude. (laughs) I can endure with this gal. I can be optimistic that he who began to get work in him is going to be faithful to complete it. I can be hopeful that God is going to work out something in him because I believe the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them. So wives that are thinking, how can I endure another 10 years with this knucklehead? He's never going to change. Let me tell you this if he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, you can, you can hope he will, because the ability's there. Is that, I mean, to me, that's that's hopeful. I'm like, okay, just knowing that the potential's there gives me some hope to endure. It's supposed to. Be optimistic with yourself and be optimistic and hopeful and patient with others because he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. The indwelling Christ gives us the power in order to live to God. Let me pray. God, I want to pray for those folks in this room, myself included that Believe the lie of Satan that we are doomed, that we are enslaved, uh, that we are um, forevermore bound to failure in areas of our lives. Lord, I'm so thankful that something that took place in the gospel was so much more than just a judicial decree, so much more than a status change, although that would be pretty sweet in and of itself but that it's actually a worshiper change. Lord, I'm thankful that this new covenant that we walk in is something so profound that in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that we actually have the ability to say no or to say yes when in the past we hadn't had that ability. Lord, I pray that gives us some hope and gives gives us some endurance gives us some patience with ourselves and some optimism with ourselves and with others. As we walk with, our se- with others and as we just do- walk the journey of faith on our own, that we have a patience as you garden in the soil of our lives. God, I pray that this will be an encouraging message for folks. I pray there will be a hope-bringing message for folks. God, I'm thankful that through Christ that we can catch the rabbit. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 31. I shared the context of Jeremiah 31 earlier. This is, um, he's a prophet um, preparing them for the exile and also prophesying about what's in store for their return. And all of 31 is talking about what's in store for their restoration. And one of the sweet passages in chapter 31 is in verse 14. He says, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness. This chapter, before we distribute the elements, I want you to keep in mind, because I'm going to share a passage with you once we have these elements in our hand, that this chapter is about a new covenant. It's about a new covenant. And in that covenant, there'll be feasting. There'll be satisfaction with God's goodness. It'll be a new time altogether. Let's distribute the elements. I've made it a um, practice to be as vulnerable as I can be from this pulpit. Um, And this will be one of those times I'm... Which scares Christy to death. I have, um, over the years, struggled with fits of anger, very angry um, outbursts. That's kind of how we dealt with things as a kid a lot of times. Whoever could, could hurt the other person or, you know, scare the other person or it was just it, it, it was the way three brothers dealt with life together. And we're still working through some of that mess. It's sad what that, what that can do to a family, but it was something that I, I was fostered in some ways, I think unknowingly grew up in a Christian home, but it's something that I've walked in my whole life. I need to know that I'm able to be free of that, not just reckon free. I need to know. Christy needs to know. I shared with her the other night the realization that I had these last few weeks that there are times where I've just been plain unkind to my wife. Spoken to her in a way that's just unkind. I'm thankful to be reckoned, forgiven, reckoned, righteous. I'm thankful that my sin is counted as his. Okay? That's sweet. But I'm equally thankful that he has given me the ability. And given her a husband that doesn't have to continue in that. What hope we have. Man, that's a deep hope. I need to know that, that this is not chasing something that you can never touch. Not chasing something I have to live with for the rest of my life, or that Christy has to live with. But that he, through the work of the Holy Spirit, beautifully, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Fruit in his time. I need to know that. Man, I'm as broken hearted well I'm not broken hearted right now these are tears of hope for me but they're also tears for those that live in this state of slavery like you're still enslaved with no optimism hopelessness it might be food that's another of my besetting issues my whole life Medicating with food since a little kid. Man, I need to know at 49, 48, I guess we're 48, that we're not enslaved to that. Just just let me know the shackles aren't on me. Just let me know that. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. I just needed to know that the carrot, that you're not just playing with me. Man told you I was going to share something from Luke chapter 22. What a wonderful wonderful age we walk in. When the hour came, he reclined at table with the apostles with him. Some of them hotheads. Malchus's ear is only the high priest's ear, whatever. Malchus, his ear is freshly reattached. <laughs> Proof that hotheads among them. No, he hadn't cut his ear off yet. He hadn't been arrested yet. But there's a hothead at the table. At least we know one. And he's one that Christ going to build his church on, ironically. The hour came. He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Hotheads and every other sort. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That earnestly desire is the word lust in Greek. The righteous lust, there is such thing for you. The struggle with the unrighteous, there is such thing as a righteous lust. I've earnestly desired, I've lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. I, I just want just, to just throw in there. Divide this among yourselves, you frail, feeble lot. You ordinary Average bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and hot-headed husbands. Now, none of them were married, at least at the time that we know of. I'm just inserting myself in that story. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying... This cup that is poured out for you is what Jeremiah promised. You're going to be walking in what Jeremiah promised 600 years ago. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Man, Jesus declares to a table of ordinary and average guys that Yahweh is accomplishing in him what he promised to Israel. And the sign of the fulfillment was the meal of bread and wine. How fitting that we do this every single week. It is literally a feast for the soul of priests in abundance. And our people, this people, is satisfied with His goodness. Let's take and eat together in faith. Let's take and drink together, hopeful and optimistic. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I ask your forgiveness for the years that I've lived so um, hopelessly. Lord, I'm thankful for the goods that we have in Christ. I pray for those in this room that are struggling and feeling defeated and feeling hopeless. Lord, I pray that this moment today, this hour and a half that we've spent together will leave them hopeful and enduring and plodding and faithful in small things, focused on the vine, trusting that you in time will bear much fruit, Oh, you're a good God, we love you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.